Well, one of the really perplexing mysteries of history is how a bunch of disappointed followers of a poor crucified man named Jesus began a movement, a movement that within 500 years had won the confessed allegiance of the entire Roman Empire. They started as a ragtag, obscure sect of Jews who followed a carpenter from Nazareth who called himself the Son of Man. And the whole enterprise would have seemed to have come to a complete halt when he was publicly disgraced and crucified, executed by the state, and most of his followers abandoned him and went into hiding. And yet, within five centuries, Christianity was the professed religion of most of the Roman Empire, the very state that had attempted to silence the voice of Jesus forever. And we can't forget that there were plenty of alternative religions scrambling for people's attention at the time. There were philosophies and well-established schools that provided wonderful answers to life's complicated questions. You know, there was Stoicism, which gave you kind of a moral guidepost, and it made a lot of sense, and if you had wanted to have a little more fun in life, you could go with Epicureanism, you know? I mean, there were some good options. And Judaism, of course, offered a very coherent moral teaching not only for individuals, but for community life. And there were exciting ritual-based religions like Mithraism to add drama to the sort of tedium of day to day. Several of these alternatives offered access to elite positions of power, which of course, early association with Christianity certainly did not. In fact, the reverse. It was probably the last thing that you wanted to hear as a parent that your child had decided to become a Christian because it certainly would have ended their opportunity for career advancement and it could well cost them their life. So I'm very glad that there are some parents here who have revised that decision and decided that you want to take the chance and bring your children to be baptized today. But as a sensible parent in the Roman world, you wanted your child to worship the popular assortment of gods, including the emperor, and that would ensure success and long life. But despite abundant religious alternatives, and despite the dangers of becoming a follower of Jesus and its sacrificial implications, Despite the ignominious death of the leader of the movement, Christianity swept the far reaches of the Roman Empire like fire. What was it? Today, on the Feast of Pentecost, we are given a possible answer. Power. Power for good. Power constrained by love. Divine power unleashed for good.
not coercive power. That, of course, did eventually, very regrettably, infect the Christian witness. And I'll say a little more about that later. But at first, when Christianity was spreading so rapidly, it was not through coercive power. The early Christians objected to the use of the sword. You know, if you were a Roman soldier and you became a Christian, you, you, you had an issue there. It was a problem. Neither was it economic power. Jesus was poor. His followers were encouraged to live simply and give their money away. And neither was it political power. Not until Constantine in the fourth century did Christianity gain respectability and political sway. The power that was so compelling in the early church was a power constrained by love. The power displayed in the bodily resurrection of Jesus, a dead person who became alive. Paul says this, For I hand on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins and he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12, and then to more than 500. And then he appeared to James, his brother. He left that one for last. In Paul's teaching, the central claims of the faith are about forgiveness that happened mysteriously through Christ's suffering for us and the power of God that raised him from the dead. That was compelling. The power of God to bring life out of death, the power of God to restore and make new the body of his dear son who gave his life for the world. And of course, the witnesses, the credible witnesses that said, yeah, it's really strange, but this is what I saw. And then, 50 days after the resurrection, on the Jewish Feast of Pentecost, it was an already established uh, feast day that Jews from all over the diaspora were coming into Jerusalem to celebrate that day. That's why we have all the people speaking different languages. On the Jewish Feast of Pentecost, we have another amazing display of power, a power to break through divisions of tribe and ethnicity, a power that would not abolish difference, but would harmonize it would bring many divided people into cooperative understanding. So let's look at the details from that Acts passage. We have the disciples who had gathered in an upper room, presumably the same upper room that they had gathered in with Jesus for the Last Supper, and that they gathered in again and saw him as risen Jesus. There they were gathering faithfully, waiting for something they didn't quite know. And then suddenly, there's a sound from heaven like a rush of violent wind. Now, you know, I didn't really know what that sounded like when I lived in Massachusetts. But now I live in Nashville. I heard that derecho and I saw what it did to the trees in my yard. A violent wind. 
And then something like the appearance of tongues of fire among them, resting on each. And then something more than just sort of this auditory, well, you can't say an auditory revelation and a visual revelation. Suddenly something more, a divine ability for action, quite specific action. These disciples begin to speak in such a way that some people just think they're babbling and drunk. But many, many more other people who are speaking in different languages hear them, these uneducated Galileans, speaking perfectly their own language. They can hear their own language. And, and what do they hear being spoken to them out of these Galileans in their perfect own language? About God's deeds of power. Pentecost is the outpouring of God's Spirit, which empowers the church for healing, for reconciliation, for unity in the face of division, for life, resurrection life. Pentecost wasn't just a symbolic event. It was the gasoline in the tank, the wind in the sails of the church. In prior times, God had given his spirit to discreet persons for discreet periods of time. But in Pentecost, it is poured out to empower the gracious proclamation of the gospel, to give people ability to heal in the name of Jesus, to forgive in the name of Jesus, to reconcile in the name of Jesus, to love in the name of Jesus, and to speak truth in the name of Jesus. I mentioned earlier that the earlier church was not coercive, and yet it was powerful, compelling. There is nothing less compelling than when the church abuses its power. I was just yesterday at my 35th reunion uh, where I was talking to two of my classmates, uh, both Canadian women, uh, and they said, Marjorie, we just don't, we don't go to church anymore. We can't go to church because of the terrible way that the church has abused its power. I mean, these women are doing great things for the world, but they can't bring themselves to church. And particularly, uh, what they were really gripping with was um, the horrors of the residential school system in Canada, which was, of course, enforced by the state, but it was churches that carried out basically taking children from their families, native, native children from their families, and stripping them of their culture and their language, and, and, of course, on occasion, abusing them. And even worse, you know, it didn't come to light until a very long time after. There have subsequently been formal acknowledgments uh, and deep apologies of this abuse by churches and proactive work at reconciliation. But this sort of institutional misuse of power, it isn't just a terrible sin. It's a stumbling block for people today. How can I, how can I go to church? And of course, we don't have to go to Canada to find coercion in the name of God. 
But such atrocities are not the last word. God's gift of his Holy Spirit is because in that gift is the gift of truth. Jesus says that he gives us an advocate who is the spirit of truth. And more than that, the Holy Spirit convicts us and brings us to repentance. And the Holy Spirit has power to heal, to restore, to raise from the dead. Strangely, when God poured out his Holy Spirit on Pentecost, he still made obedience a matter of choice. He did not perfect his people. Peter still sinned. Now, don't get me wrong. I think there was massive improvement in Peter. I think the people who loved him most were like, whoa, whoever this Jesus is, I want to get to know him because Peter was pretty difficult, you know. And something made him humble. And something made him ask for forgiveness. Something encouraged him. But nonetheless, Peter still sinned. We read in Acts when he refuses to eat with Gentiles. But we know Peter had a revelation directly from God, a vision that said, no, 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 Peter, you can eat with the Gentiles now. He knew that. But later on, he just chickened out. And he didn't do it. Because God hadn't quite finished his work with Peter. God does not zap his people into obedient zombies to do his bidding. He's not coercive in his love. But he did give power to the church to be his witnesses in the ministry of truth, of love and reconciliation. And that is marvelous for at least two reasons. I think you all can think of more, but we've got a baptism to do, so I'm only going to give you two. The church has power in the midst of divisions, unique power. Power not to boss around and coerce, but to lead sacrificially in the work of reconciliation. Because we of all people know the mercy and the grace of being reconciled by Jesus. Hang on to that. We need to remember the power that we have as the church in times of division. Second, we individually are given power to minister in Jesus' name. Not because we've earned this power, but because it is our Heavenly Father's good pleasure to give us this dignity and purpose. Most amazingly, even after we've messed up. The Gospel of John concludes with a wonderful passage about this. Peter has betrayed Jesus three times, and he must have thought that he was now completely forever disqualified to work the kingdom's good. But Jesus comes to him for a quiet word, just like Queen Elizabeth, you know, went around, quiet word to people. He comes to Peter, and not only does he forgive him, he charges him, feed my sheep. He charges him to participate in the most precious ministry of the great shepherd himself. And we are included in that charge. 
what a privilege it is. How much that personal call to action restores our tattered self-esteem and confidence. And how exciting, because we've been given the power of God to accomplish it. We have an advocate, the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells us not to be afraid. Rather, look for the power of God and trust in his loving purposes. Amen.